Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That with episode 512 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week across NXT and AEW. We have yet another loaded show for your ear holes today. We have a ton that went down on NXT Halloween Havoc Night 1, and AEW provided yet another week with six hours of programming. Yes, Dynamite, Collision, Rampage, and there was a Battle of the Belts episode. So there is a ton to talk about, as always, on today's show, and we are not going to waste any more time getting into it. Allow me to remind you right off the top here in this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast that this show is all about Defy. So please remember to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, leave a five-star rating on Apple. Take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. And please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get exclusive news posts and bonus audio, of which we have already done three this week, a fourth, of course, coming Friday after SmackDown, along with our news post every single Friday. And for anyone who is already an official getting overhead, they can attest that the quality of content we provide there just the same as it is here with some exclusive information as well. But not only that, financially supporting the show would be greatly appreciated. So we do have a ton to get to on this individual episode. There are also some kind of news items that have been circulating throughout the world of wrestling that I was initially going to include in here. The NWA supposedly uh, is getting a TV deal of some kind with the CW. That needs to be discussed. There's the CMLL relationship with AEW that has developed. We're going to touch on that a little bit later. There's also some things going on in New Japan Pro Wrestling that I wanted to discuss, but there is so much on today's show that I just don't think we're going to be able to have the appropriate time to get into all of it. So I'm going to put a pause to all of that right now. We're going to focus on NXT and AEW. And maybe next week in this exact spot, we will spend more time talking about it. Now, in terms of the way this show is going to work, we are going to kick off with NXT Halloween Havoc Night 1, a reaction to everything that happened, a mini preview of Night 2. And then we're going to break down everything that happened over the last week in AEW. There is just so much with AEW and so much of it weaving back and forth between the shows, you know, notes from one having to do with the other, that doing AEW first and pushing NXT to the end, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense when you're considering the show order. But as I always mention here off the top, please remember we have timestamps in our episode description. So if you feel like you want to jump around, uh, listen to one now, the other later, you only care about one brand or the other, you have the opportunity to do it. Just go check them out and go to the correct timestamp. But as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. Now, Halloween Havoc Night 1 was not just a great show. There was something special about it as well on Tuesday. It's late. 
It was ladies night on NXT, five different matches involving the women, and they were thrown throughout the entire show in the best possible manner, a huge feature of the women's division by the leader of NXT, whatever you want to call him, creative chief, the head booker, whatever, Shawn Michaels, the heartbreak kid. It was just a fantastic, like I said, job by Shawn putting the women in the spotlight on Tuesday. And that's not to say, by the way, that there's not going to be plenty of women's matches next week for Halloween Havoc Night 2, which I believe is actually going to be directly on Halloween. But it was just noticeable how much of a focus was on the women for night one. And the show is better for it. That's just the truth. So we're going to go ahead, break down everything that happened on Halloween Havoc night one. And we're going to kick it off with the hosts who were Shotzi and Scarlet. Shotzi appropriately was dressed, I think is the character Pinhead is what it's called from Hellraiser. I have no idea who Scarlet was supposed to be. She looked like Marie Antoinette, but I assumed it was a horror reference or something because I just don't watch that stuff, so I don't necessarily get all the horror references. I did the best I could uh, during this breakdown because there were a lot of costumes on NXT Tuesday. Scarlett did tarot cards with Metaphor later in the show, basically predicting that Noam Dar would lose the Heritage Cup soon. As Metaphor got spooked out, Akira Tozawa sneakily stole the cup from under their nose. They later saw a picture of Tozawa taunting them with the cup at the Haunted Mansion that has been used previously for NXT Halloween Havoc and spooky types of matches. So that's going to be fun next week. Shotzi later changed into Edward Scissorhands and Scarlet, I think legitimately just put on black lingerie with like blood around her neck like it was slit. And folks, you know, respectfully. It looked good, but she's got me saying, hey now. now. The Creed brothers came out complaining about getting screwed out of the title match last week. It led to Ivy Nile spinning the wheel and making a deal for a TLS match, tables, ladders, and scares. So that's the stipulation for the Creeds against the Garzas next week. Oh, and Brutus was also dressed as Pennywise, I think is what it's called, the sewer clown or whatever, but he didn't have all the makeup, just like the gimmick, like the clothes. I told you guys, I really don't watch horror movies. I'm going to do the best I can here. So laugh along with me, probably making a bunch of mistakes when I call out some of these characters. We're going to skip from the opening of the show and the host to the main event, the NXT Women's Championship was on the line. Becky Lynch defending against Lyra Valkyria. Before the entrances, Jade Cargill came out and sat on a throne in the crowd while looking like a million bucks. Booker T almost had an aneurysm seeing her. Now, this was built all show as the biggest match in the history of Ireland. I was curious about that moniker, so I looked it up. In WWE, the only other match that you could call bigger for Irish fans would be Finn Balor against Sheamus. They never fought one-on-one on TV. All of their matches have been on house shows, six in the UK, and their first ever meeting was actually in Dublin back in 2015. So in terms of that moniker, I guess it's not totally untrue, although you could say Sheamus in any title match or Balor in any title match would work. But again, we're talking an all-Irish match. So yeah, this probably was the biggest WWE match in terms of two Irish Superstars are involving multiple, more than one, Irish superstar. NXT also aired, quote, live footage of people watching in Ireland. It was 3 a.m. there when this was going on, so I'm quite sure it was taped clips, and there was no clear indication that they were reacting to anything that happened. It seemed completely canned. Anyway, on to the match itself. Lyra hit her Northern Light Suplex Bridge and avoided the draping leg drop only to catch Lynch with it herself. Valkyria uh, countered both Manhandle Slam and the Disarm her twice. 
Becky caught her in the corner for a flip over stunner and hit a double underhook into an arm bar. Lyra came back with some really inventive stuff and a cradle brain buster. Becky then avoided Lyra's splash and got disarm her for a rope break. Lyra took her out of the corner with a Liger bomb. Lynch came back with a superplex into a spike DDT. She got frustrated and ate a roundhouse kick from Lyra. That was a false finish. Becky caught Lyra's leg on a kick attempt, uh, flipped her backwards onto her face, and then hit manhandle slam pretty much in one motion for what I can describe as a true false finish because everyone was legitimately stunned that that was not the end of the match. Valkyria appeared just dead in this moment, but she got up and hit a roundhouse kick. Uh, Lynch then ducked one and was ready to deliver manhandle slam when Lyra somehow countered that into like a side pinning combination and got the shocking one, two, three in 17 minutes to become the new NXT women's champion. Becky stole the title from the referee after the bell, handed it to Lyra, hugged her. Uh, She did a quick check on Jade while she was doing that. She also said a bunch of stuff to Lyra, probably that she was proud of her and things like that. Then she raised her arm twice to end the show. This, I should note, included a full 15-minute overrun, which I believe was the longest that NXT has ever done. And look, you want to talk about a damn surprise? Wow, okay? First of all, tremendous match. Legitimate. Banger. 4.25 stars and an A. Becky and Lyra straight up cooked. Once they got going, it was almost effortless. And the match story of Lyra scouting Becky so well over her entire life leading up to this moment that she had counters for everything that she did, it was perfect. It was the match of her entire career, and she wrestled like it was the match of her career. The finish also was superb. Anyone watching, me, you, yes, you, whoever's listening to this right now, we all expected this to end with the second manhandle slam, Lynch retaining the title, and Valkyria getting a star-making moment in defeat. Nope. Just a completely unexpected title change and a squeaky clean win over the top woman in the entire business. Not just that, she kicked out of the finisher of a WrestleMania main eventer. Probably the best looking manhandle slam ever as well. Like she delivered it great, Becky did. Lyra took it great. She got folded in half and she still went on to win the match. You want to talk about strapping a rocket to someone. This is how you do it. I legitimately do not know what else they could have done to make this a bigger moment. Consider the contrast between what they did here and how Charlotte Flair loses titles. It is night and day, especially the NXT title. Charlotte beat Rhea Ripley, did nothing with the title, and then lost in a triple threat. Becky gave Stratton the two best matches of her entire career, defended the title constantly, and then lost clean on TV to Lyra. That's exactly how it should be when you use a star like her in this way. And I have said it so many times on this show. Lyra has it. You have it. You couldn't get rid of it. You couldn't sell it if you wanted to. You are it. Her lack of finisher, though, remains infuriating. But the rest of the package is there. I'm thrilled for her and the execution of this booking. I had heard that Becky was carrying this title through November. Maybe something changed. Maybe I got bad information. But this creates so many interesting possibilities for Lynch over the next two months before WrestleMania season gets underway. Maybe she's going to take a break and be with Rue for a bit. Maybe she gets into a big non-title feud. There's so many different things they can do with her. All in all, thrilled for Lyra. And we really do need to give Becky her flowers here. She held the title for under six weeks. The second shortest reign 
in the history of the NXT Women's Championship. She elevated the Raw Women's Division and a portion of the NXT Women's Division with it. And obviously no one elevated more than Lyra. That's like super duper elevation, what Valkyria got on Tuesday night. Becky brought ratings to NXT and attention to the show. She also entertained the hell out of us, by the way. And then when you consider the booking, using Becky to safely take the title off Tiffany Stratton, then switching it off her in an emotional match, possibly to serve as a transitional reign before maybe Jade Cargill wins it, that's possible. It makes so much sense. I've said it before. I'll say it again now, and I'm going to say it plenty of times before this podcast ends one day in whatever, 2072. Becky Lynch is the greatest women's wrestler of all time right now, full stop. Ring work, psychology, promos, consistency. Just the last two months, you have seen the Zoe Stark Falls Count Anywhere match, the Trish Stratus cage match, two bangers against Tiffany Stratton, and this against Lyra. That's five matches that were four stars or better in seven weeks. It's unmatched. It's ridiculous stuff. She's incredible. Wanted her to get her flowers, as Becky tends to get frequently here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Now, there's a lot more that happened on NXT, so we're going to get to that. Vic Joseph interviewed Carmelo Hayes earlier in the day and straight up asked him whether he attacked Trick Williams last week. Melo said it's one thing to want the title. He would never turn on his best friend like that. Then while speaking about Ilya Dragunov, he said he can't exactly claim to be him if he's not champion. Vic circled back about Trick and... What if he was actually in the match? What would he have done? Mello said he would have done what was necessary to come out on top before dedicating next week's match to Williams. Vic later interviewed Ilya, who said he would bend but not break, promising Mello would break just like he did at No Mercy. Dragunov said he doesn't adjust his game plan to the opponent. They have to adjust to him. Ilya also suggested Mello may not be fully focused on the title anymore, which is his, Dragunov's, only focus. Mello was watching the interview when Shotzi and Scarlett sidled up to him holding hands in blue dresses like I think the girls, like the little girls from Shining. Uh, they said all signs pointed to him, so Mello assumed that meant he would win the title back. They clarified that meant he was the one who attacked Trick. He told them go mess with someone else. I can't recall seeing Vic Joseph in this role before, like an interviewer role, you know, pre-tape type of deal. He was solid, but it was really odd that he dresses down for commentary, yet was in a full suit for this interview. Mello was fine. His interview didn't particularly hit for me. They're not all going to be home runs. Ilya was far better, but his was also a lot more straightforward. The best part of all of it was the interaction with Mello, Shotzi, and Scarlett at the end, which was just can't be fun. Uh, Baron Corbin backstage complained about always doing the hard work with someone always taking advantage of his efforts, referring to last week's triple threat loss. Corbin was asked about Trick. He claimed he didn't do it either. Then he said it could have been a lot of other people mentioning not just Dijak, but Mello, Axiom, Wesley, which now makes me think it's not Wesley after I was totally sure last week that it was going to be him. So that's interesting. Obviously, we'll have to find out who it's going to be. Von Wagner had a bigger head bandage this week while doing rehabilitation with a walker. He said Mr. Stone has a death wish challenging Braun Breaker, but Stone said he just wanted to land one punch for his friend. Wagner was touched that he was called a friend, but said he would be nowhere near ready to help him next week. Then he got focused and started rehabbing even harder. So clearly, it seems Von's going to show up in some way somehow next week. This was far better than last week's version. I kind of hope the headdressing, like, keeps getting bigger by the week until he's just a mummy. That would make a lot of sense. Uh, Braun later confronted Mello backstage saying, 
They were the talk of the industry a couple of weeks ago, and they're going to be at the top of the industry competing for years to come. Braun said Melo proved he will do anything by taking out his best friend. Hayes again denied it. Breaker said if he brought that same intensity next week, that he'd actually beat Dragunov, and they could get back to bashing heads one-on-one after that. It is just truly insane to me. And I know that for like six months before he actually turned, I was begging them to turn Braun Breaker heel. But it is insane how much better he is as a heel. I thought he'd be, I don't know, you know, 50% better. He's like 200% better as a heel. This was an excellent segment furthering the controversy around Mello and cementing Braun even more as just like a devilish piece of shit. He was literally like the physical manifestation of the devil on Mello's shoulder here. So really well done. And it was actually one of the best parts on the entire show Tuesday night. The tag team championships were also on the line. D'Angelo family against Chase U. Thea Hale backstage sarcastically said she's not going to throw in any towels. Uh, then Andre Chase kicked D'Angelo family out of their locker room when Tony D'Angelo made some type of snide comment about the past. Duke Hudson had a strong hot tag with Bossman Slam. Stax escaped a fratliner setup. Hudson ate a spike DDT on the ring apron and a really sick German suplex spot after Hudson hopped over the ropes. He then hit the German. Uh, Hudson diverted the champion's finisher with a pounce, and JC Jane slid Chase a crowbar. He rejected that, so she jumped on the apron to use it herself. D'Angelo was running the ropes, bounced her off, got distracted. Chase caught him with a really unique trap pinning combination for the win and the title change. Not only did this match exceed expectations, I would never have predicted that a title change would happen here. I figured Jane was going to cost them the straps of anything. There was actually a moment after the bell where they all looked at each other with a glare and then maybe there was like a half a grin between Chase and Jane. It was interesting. That created some intrigue. But this overdelivered, uh 3.75 stars B+, some real inventive sequences. The surprise winners just kind of took it over the top. I'm extremely curious to see where this goes now. But I will say, D'Angelo family, even though they're over, they weren't really the best champions. So I'm actually glad they made this change. Chase U has been deserving of being featured in a title picture for some time now. I would really like to see the guys supporting the girls going after the women's tag team titles. That was my immediate thought coming out of this segment. So later backstage, all four celebrated the Chase U people uh, with Hudson realizing they're now locker room leaders. They all chanted about being winners when suddenly Chelsea Green and Piper Niven dressed as the Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf, respectively, and I didn't need help on that. It's not a horror movie. I got that one. Uh, complained about their volume. She wanted to complain to Shawn Michaels with JC, saying that she would show them the office so they could get a title match. So this is going to be a theme on this show here, but Chelsea? It looked good, but she's got me saying, hey now! Ah, fun backstage segment. The exact booking I had in my head coming out of the match, like I just explained, that just makes complete storyline sense that they're doing this. NXT does a really good job in that regard. And you know I've been talking about this for years. The women's tag team titles are supposed to be defended on all three brands. That was the point when they were initially introduced. And look what they're doing now, defending them on all three brands. We have challengers on NXT. We have Unholy Union popping up on SmackDown and a few different teams vying for them on Raw. Triple H and Shawn Michaels, they're getting this right. Roxanne Perez fought Kiana James in a Devil's Playground match. Perez was dressed as Freddy Krueger uh, while James was just in regular gear. The gimmick was basically a swing set with weapons outside the ring. For some reason, I thought this was a weapons-lined steel cage, but I guess that's a different type of stipulation. Uh, it was also false count anywhere, I should note. 
James broke a laptop over Roxy's back. Perez came back with a Russian leg sweep into a slide that was funny enough, a really long piece of molded plastic on, I think, like a walker. Kiana swung her into the barricade and then powerbombed her into a trash can at ringside. James missed a moonsault off the barricade, so Roxy caught her with a brick-filled purse and then nailed Pop Rocks onto the purse for the win. My favorite part about this might have been the really corny weapons between the slide and the purse. When Roxy opened the purse and emptied it out after the bell, little chunks of like foam fell out, but they were painted to look like they were brick. I actually just laughed out loud, but it was a damn good opener. Uh, they made good use of the stipulation and Roxy got a big win after losing to Asuka a couple weeks ago. I went 3.5 stars and a B, something that made me laugh also. So I finally got around to watching the Barbie movie on Monday night. And for anyone who has seen that, and don't worry, this is not a major spoiler or anything. Uh, you know how Ken in that movie basically said, my job is beach. Like he's beach. That's that's all he is. He doesn't, he's not a lifeguard. He's not this, he's not that. He's just beach. I can't help but laugh now thinking that when I see Kiana, she's just business. Like she's not a stockbroker. She's not a real estate mogul. She's just business. Maybe that's only funny to me, but it was a parallel that I could not shake uh, during this match. And I really should note, just before I continue, I was really close to 3.75 stars on this. So uh, Roxanne Perez, Kiana James, obviously Becky Lynch against uh, Lyra Valkyria and the tag team title match. I would definitely go out of your way to watch all three of those if you have not seen NXT yet and you're listening to this first. Gigi Dolan fought Blair Davenport in a lights out match. Gigi came out as Beetlejuice. Blair came out in a yellow raincoat with a red balloon, which... I think is also from that It movie. Uh, What do I know? Uh, It was the same lights out gimmick as last year with a black light providing the glow. Dolan hit a meteora off the apron through Davenport in a chair. Fans got juiced for a table spot only for Blair to slide it out of the ring. Gigi started using a strap, which turned Booker T on. Uh, Blair straight through a chair at Gigi's head. It seemed to like careen outside into commentary. Then she pulled out her own table and wiped off the announce table. Davenport countered Dolan into a falcon arrow off the announce table through the regular one, and then hit a Kamagoye inside for the win. This went like 12 minutes, and compared to their first two meetings, this might as well have been Okada Omega. I mean, it was way, way, way better, again, compared to their initial meetings, but still not great. I'm slightly surprised that Blair won, but with a babyface champion, she is the perfect challenger for a forthcoming main event, and Gigi wasn't exactly hurt by the loss, but it does feel like Dolan needs to get a substantial push of some kind sooner than later because she's kind of just been in this weird purgatory ever since Mandy Rose left. And really, it's best that both Blair and Gigi are moving on to something else because they just never clicked. I wasn't planning to grade this match, but it was probably like 3.25 stars, maybe 3.5, you could get there. It, It was solid, don't get me wrong, but it just didn't hold a candle to the other three top matches on the show. Tiffany Stratton was doing an interview when Fallon Henley came in dressed and made up exactly like her, doing a perfect impersonation. I mean, I I don't even know. It was to the point where when she walked into the frame, I did not realize it was her. It took a good minute. I'm like, who is this? She does not look like anyone who's ever been in NXT. And then I finally, like with her nose and cheek, I was like, oh, I think that's Fallon Henley. And then obviously it was Fallon Henley. Uh, She went the whole way with it and was even her same height. I guess she was wearing high heels. You can argue, I'm not saying it's true, but you can argue that she did Stratton's gimmick better than Stratton. And like I said, she certainly looked the part. 
doesn't look good, but she's got me saying, hey now. I'm telling you, it was a trend on this episode. I'm just, it's not me. It's the, what the episode did. Uh, there was a fun usage of the Halloween theme to build intensity in a storyline for next week. One of the best parts of the show, really, this segment. And you know what? It may have been the best thing that Fallon has ever done. That's how good it was. Lexus King fought Dante Chen. King made his debut. He slid out from the side of the entryway, I guess, on a throne saying, Brian Pillman is dead. Long live Lexus King. It was like straight out of a rock music video or something. Really cool looking entrance. Booker T worked really hard to put him over throughout the match. King took advantage of Chen doing some mannerisms with a super kick and then hit a cross-armed draping swinging. I almost called it a DDT. I guess it's a neck breaker. He was set up as a DDT, but he got swung into a neck breaker uh, for the win. It was fine. No doubt he looked better than he did in AEW with the stupid varsity gimmick and the mullet, but he was still quite vanilla here. He's not overly charismatic in the ring. It's just match one and he's got plenty of time left, but he's going to have to be much better than he was here in the long term. Now in the background, during the Chase U segment I mentioned earlier, I'm pretty sure that Boa in his full face paint, we haven't seen this guy, it feels like two years at this point, approached and was talking to Chen after the loss, maybe recruiting him into a tag team or something like that. So that's just something to keep an eye on. A hard hitting home truths with Nathan Frazier was back. They finally figured out how to make it look like he was sitting behind the desk instead of on top of it. Frazier spent the segment ripping Dominic Mysterio in a variety of ways, saying he's only North American champion because of Rhea Ripley. Then he challenged Dom for the title next week. But at the end of it, when they went back to the graphic, he was back on top of the desk, which just looked shitty again. I understand this segment is basically just a vehicle for Frazier to work on his promo skills, but the packaging is completely unnecessary. If he just cut this promo into a camera from like any location, it would have worked just as well. Either way, to his credit, it was by far the best addition out of any of these, and he's way more comfortable cutting promos now than he was initially. Clonny Jordan fought Ariana Grace in the breakout tournament semifinal. There was good work both ways here. Grace was smoother. She played her gimmick better. Jordan was more impressive in the ring, especially given her inexperience. Clonny was dressed like Spider Gwen, I think. Uh, she knocked Ariana off the ropes and hit her split leg moonsault. There was a great Rob Van Dam one-of-a-kind call from Joseph. Uh, and she got the win to advance. The right winner, especially since the expectation was a heel coming from the other side of the bracket, she's way better Kalani than her experience level. Notable from this match was that Danny Palmer was one of the talents in the breakout room dressed in costume. They were all dressed up. She was fully made up as Roman Reigns, complete with the glove, two titles, etc. We tweeted a picture of it. If you missed it, very funny. And lastly, Carmen Petrovic fought Lola Vice in the other breakout tournament semifinal, Carmen surprisingly dominated early and hit a nice tope suicida back inside. She immediately got caught with a roundhouse kick kind of out of nowhere and Vice advanced. I was surprised Lola didn't get featured more here. As I said last week, this has been a real lackluster tournament, especially compared to years past. Like think about like the Roxanne Perez and the Tiffany Stratton tournaments. And then you have Lola Vice beating Carmen Petrovic in three minutes and 36 seconds. The Kalani Jordan match went like almost eight minutes. And this one got half the time, but Lola's the best of the four talents, at least in terms of like today. So I just thought it was really strange. I think it has a lot to do with the tournament, the, the my dissatisfaction with the tournament. I think it has a lot to do with the relative inexperience of all the women, but the matches have also been short and uneventful. I'm just ready for it to be over. I still believe Vice is gonna be the one getting the win next week. Now, in terms of the NXT Halloween Havoc Night 2 card, we're gonna run this down 
uh, pretty quick. And I'll just give some real quick one-off predictions here. NXT Championship match, Ilya Dragunov against Carmelo Hayes. Dragunov retains. Something happens with Trick Williams. We'll find out. Uh, NXT North American Championship, Dominic Mysterio against Nathan Frazier. Gotta believe Mysterio wins. Ripley helps him retain. Uh, with Becky Lynch leaving NXT, taking the title also off Dom. Doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, WWE Women's Tag Team Championship match, Chelsea Green and Piper Niven against JC Jane and Thea Hale. I mean, it would be great if JC won this. I would absolutely love it, but they're doing a lot more. I don't want to say a lot, just a lot more. With the Women's Tag Team titles over on the main roster, Chelsea and Piper are over to a degree, so changing them here doesn't make any sense. Uh, Tables, Ladders, and Scares match, the Creed Brothers against Angel Garza and Umberto Creo. This is the one I actually just have no idea what they're going to do. It could go both ways. Now that there's a babyface set of champions, I guess there are still a babyface set of champions. Uh, Angel and Umberto make more sense to win, become number one contenders, but they don't necessarily need to win the titles until NXT deadline, which is in December. So I'm going to go with the heels, but I'm not overly confident in it. I just think them cheating earlier and then them cheating here really would establish them as a heel duo. Uh, the women's breakout tournament finals, Lola Vice against Kalani Jordan. I do have Vice winning there. Braun Breaker against Robert Stone. Obviously, Braun Breaker winning. But let's not forget, Robert Stone used to be a wrestler. So I'm actually kind of curious to see how this match goes. If Stone gets an opportunity to do anything, if it's just one punch, if Von Wagner pops in, even if Von does pop in, I don't think he would result in stone beating breaker. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And then Tiffany Stratton against Fallon Henley. I mean, I would love to see Henley win and step up and challenge for the title. It's just, I don't think she's going to. So Stratton is my winner here. And this is not a match for the card, but with the Heritage Cup and Akira Tozawa uh, having stolen it from Noam Dar, it kind of feels like there should be a Heritage Cup match. I don't want to say in the haunted house, but that should factor in. My guess is that because it's the Heritage Cup, uh, they're not going to do a match there. It wouldn't really make sense within the rules. So they'll probably do a segment in the haunted house with both of them and Tazawa and maybe some other people, uh, and then probably do the match two weeks from now on the next regular NXT show. So excited for Halloween Havoc uh, this coming week. Uh, but Tuesday, I thought it was one of the best TV specials of the entire year, whether main roster, WWE, NXT, AEW, they just knocked Halloween Havoc night one out of the damn park. Moving over to AEW, as I said, we have six hours of programming to discuss. We have Dynamite Collision, Rampage, and Battle of the Belts. I truncated as much as I could to get it into a relatively, you know, decent uh, time frame here, but we do have a lot to talk about from all of those shows. Dynamite was in Philadelphia on Wednesday, and it was the first time that AEW had a truly full crowd, probably since WrestleDream. Dynamite was not only the best booked AEW show of the week by a mile, the lively crowd made a drastic difference in how this came across. I wanted to send some props out here because I did it earlier in this week uh, for San Antonio because of SmackDown. Obviously, this was half as many people as WWE had for SmackDown in San Antonio, but still, it was nearly double what AEW has been doing previously for Dynamite. They were loud. They were engaged. And like I said, they made a difference in the quality of the show. Now, everything is going to get mixed up here between Collision, Rampage, Battle of the Belts, and Dynamite because we're telling stories. I mean, we're breaking this down in a storyline fashion. So stick with us, which means we're, we're starting uh, with Collision, the guns fighting the Outrunners. So that's why I have to 
give that warning here off the top. They won obviously with 310 to Yuma in two minutes. I just don't get this stuff. Like this is what we used to criticize WWE for doing. Like years and years, these quick matches that don't mean anything that are completely irrelevant. Jay White had walked out with the guns after the bell. The lights went out. We saw the devil mask backstage for a moment. Fans chanted MJF, even though we know it's not MJF, which was odd. This is something I've been thinking about since they have now spent weeks without showing the devil mask until now. It makes the most sense to be someone who is not on TV and has a reason to don the mask. No one is debuting for AEW from WWE or elsewhere. And if you want the reveal to be meaningful, then it has to be someone who's going to draw a reaction. So I was racking my brain thinking about who this could be. And I gotta tell you, the answer last night jumped out to me and it became completely obvious. I said last night, it jumped out to me Saturday is what I meant. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think the devil mask is Jack Perry. It makes sense. He's coming off suspension. He's actually already been off suspension for weeks, but he has not re-debuted. He could be considered the devil due to the CM Punk exit. It's another effort possibly to get him over the initial heel turn. It only worked to a limited degree. And it puts him into a title program, possibly with the guy who's taking Punk's role right now, Jay White carrying around the championship, and or MJF if he gets involved in the match at full gear. For me, it's Jack Perry. It makes too much sense not to be him. And if it's someone like random, it could be disappointing. Maybe even Jack is going to be disappointing to a portion of the fan base. I just think it makes the most sense. On Battle of the Belts, there was an ROH TV title match. Uh, Samoa Joe squashed Tony Nese with a muscle buster in one minute. He cut a promo warning MJF he was coming for the AEW title. Joe said MJF could give him a title match or he'd put him in a situation where he's forced to do it. I feel like he did this already with CM Punk and MJF. I don't know why MJF would give him what would approximately be a third title match. And by the way, Joe already has a title, so I I don't understand why they keep getting him involved. And there was a segment involving Joe on Dynamite, and it's I still don't understand why he's involved with this. On Dynamite, the Dynamite Diamond Ring was on the line, MJF defending it against Juice Robinson. MJF called Adam Cole to start the show with Roderick Strong and Kingdom rolling in. Strong said they could pretend MJF isn't the devil mask and that they would help him out with Bullet Club Gold. He pushed Strong completely out of the picture, which was funny. Then he ranted on having a bullet with their name on it, meaning Bullet Club Juice Robinson. And then the devil mask popped into the screen for about five seconds. Juice bladed a few minutes in. MJF tried to do a curb stomp like American History X style on the steel steps, but it was thwarted. Much later, Juice spit in his face and hit the left hand of God plus a powerbomb. Then he hit Juice's loose. Those were supposed to be false finishes. But despite the fans, and I I just praised the Philly crowd, okay, they were standing on their feet and paying attention for this match. They did not react to these like they were false finishes. I thought that was really weird. The guns distracted the referee as Robinson pulled out the TJ Maxx ring, but MJF simultaneously pulled out the real ring. He punched Juice right in the face. He followed with Heatseeker for the one, two, three to retain the ring for a fifth straight year. The guns immediately attacked as per usual, so Kingdom wheeled down strong. They helped. They immediately got knocked out of the ring, so Acclaimed made the save. Jay White then jumped on the mic, telling MJF, forget about all the shit that's going on other than me. The gun said they wanted a challenge for the ROH tag team titles, also at full gear. MJF accepted that challenge like an idiot babyface, which he's not supposed to be. 
And then he accepted the eight-man challenge from a couple weeks ago so he can regain the triple B. Strong then assumed that MJF was choosing them, but he called Strong a bland bitch. Max Caster assumed he would choose them, but MJF said he would never tag with him. For some reason, Caster thought MJF, despite saying he would never tag with him, he hates him, thought he would scissor him, but MJF walked up and closed his fingers. And then after this, Kenny Omega came out, stared MJF down for a holy shit chant, meandered with a decently confusing promo, and said he deserved the right to defend his streak as the longest reigning AEW champion. MJF accepted the challenge for collision. They shook hands, and MJF did his sign-off. Every single time I thought this segment was nearing an end, it just kept going. Okay, a lot to unpack, one thing at a time. The match, super strange in that the crowd clearly cared about it, but didn't pop for the false finishes. Also a disappointing result. It would have been refreshing for someone else to hold the ring, especially someone who uses a left hand, a punch, as one of his finishers. It just felt to me like it was a solid match that never reached the level it should have. Though I will say I did like the creative very much for the finish with the rings and the way they did that, despite not being a fan of the booking. I know the ring is basically a prop for MJF at this point, but if that's the case, he doesn't need to defend it every year. It's it's just kind of stale. Like it, It's been this one guy's thing. Let him keep it. Why do we keep going back to like him putting it on the line? Or if someone wants it, they should just be able to challenge him for it. They don't need to go through like a battle royal or a tournament or something like that to get the opportunity, especially if he's always going to retain. It's just silly. So, okay, next. Strong in the kingdom stuff and the claim stuff. Obviously, it makes sense given their motivations last week. I assume MJF is still eventually going to choose acclaimed after being put into the corner, maybe with an attack on Saturday. It's just so inconsistent for him as a babyface that he can be goaded into this and play to the crowd on that, yet won't accept help from a babyface trio that has now saved him a couple of times. And then you have MJF accepting the guns challenge, which to me was absolutely moronic, both in kayfabe and in reality. MJF may be a baby face now, but he's the opposite of a stereotypical dumb baby face who puts himself in bad positions just to prove a point. Why the fuck would a guy who calls himself the devil and a scumbag who has a huge world title match in the main event of this show agree to wrestle twice on the same night, but not only that, two on one for a tag team match, and not only that, against challengers from the same faction who clearly have ulterior motives. Wouldn't the guns potentially just beat the ever-loving shit out of him and make him so injured and sore that by the time he gets to his main event match, Jay White doesn't, doesn't take much effort to just beat him for the title? Like, if you're MJF and you're scripting this, at least demand a stipulation where like, okay, I will wrestle both of these matches, but everyone has to be barred from ringside for both of them. Like do something smart, keep up the aura that you're this really smart baby face who, you know, you outsmart everyone, you're better than them, they can't get one over on you. And he just lets them goad him into two matches in one night, one of them a handicap match, two titles on the line. It's just kind of strange. So he's an idiot there, which is counter to his character. Then we have the Omega challenge. I had much less of a problem with this because we figured it was coming after last week. I remember saying if Omega was going to inject himself into the situation, they would literally have to do the match on collision or it would be a waste. Boom. There you go. They're doing it on collision. 
Kenny and MJF are two of AEW's top remaining draws. So a title match really should result in a ratings uptick. And I'm totally fine with it because the record reign, Kenny's lengthy reign, creates storyline justification for doing it, which AEW often does not even bother giving us in random TV title matches. But you do have to question booking this match, which could main event a pay-per-view on three, four days notice for an episode of Collision during football season. It's clear ratings are the only reason this is being done. If they cannot get more than like 560,000 viewers, that's their high number since July. If they can't get more than that, it's gonna be a straight up failure. If they get, let's call it 670,000 or more, I would call it a massive success because that would be a 20% increase. So that's a breakdown of this entire MJF situation, but there's still a little more to talk about with him. On Dynamite, Wardlow got a promo package saying that sitting at home wasn't healthy for him. He wasn't recovering from injuries, just going down a spiral. That's all he was doing. He said he sat and watched MJF, an evil guy who used to shit on the fans, become a babyface, main eventing the biggest show in AEW's history, and all it did was enrage him Wardlow further. He promised to take everything from MJF. You see, this made perfect sense. Like, it was probably the best promo of Wardlow's entire career, and it fit perfectly with his character. The motivations made complete sense based on their relationship, the current MJF storyline. I loved this from Wardlow. On Dynamite, Samoa Joe approached MJF in the trainer's room, saying MJF has no one having his back right now. So he offered, hey, I'll have your back. He stuck out his hand, shake on it, we're good. MJF immediately shook, but Joe said the condition is that MJF give him a rematch for the title once he gets past all these other people. MJF did not answer him either way. I liked the idea of this, especially if it plays through full gear, because MJF is gonna be going up against an entire faction there, and Joe is the type of guy who can legitimately even the sides. Plus, strange bedfellows, that always works. And especially when there is someone like Joe involved, his character keeps his word, and Joe knows his character better than most wrestlers do. So you believe what Joe's saying, you believe what MJF is saying, they worked together well previously, even though I don't like the idea of Samoa Joe getting another title match that he doesn't really deserve, I do like the pairing here where MJF's like, look, there's another scumbag, it's another bad guy, and even though I'm a good guy now, I at least know he's gonna live up to his end of the bargain because he's motivated by greed like I used to be. So I was a huge fan of these two segments, as you can tell. On Collision, Darby Allen got a promo package telling Nick Wayne that he had been looking out for him and will make him pay for turning his back. He also said he would be alongside Sting when Tony Khan gives him a special gift on Dynamite. And Wayne would come out then, or could come out then, I should say, if he wanted to. Both Darby and then later Tony Schiavone shared that the gift was going to be special and incredible. That's how this was promoted. So this was around the mid-show segment on Dynamite. Tony Schiavone called Philadelphia the greatest wrestling city. I mean, I thought that was Chicago, especially for AEW, which always runs Chicago. Sting thanked Darby for having his back. He thanked Khan for giving him a chance to grapple for a few more years. Shivani said Sting put wrestling on TBS on the map 35 years ago, and he decided to announce the special gift, which was the nature boy, Ric Flair. Fans chanted, holy shit for Flair. He came down, hugged both of them, put Sting over. Then he said he wanted to ride the wave with Sting until March. Christian Cage came out criticizing the gift from a billionaire, basically saying it was cheap. He said if there were a God, Flair would have been dead 20 years ago. So he got a fuck you Christian chant. Then he stumbled around trying to get some cheap heat by talking about the Phillies. 
Yeah, all your sports teams, they're all failures. Christian said he didn't want to wait and wanted Sting retired immediately, so he challenged them to a six-man tag team match at full gear if they can find a partner. Sting accepted, and I immediately assumed, like probably you did, that Adam Copeland would be the partner. Later backstage, Copeland said he wouldn't fight Christian. Darby came up telling him not to be stupid. Sting was floored that this was even a conversation, saying Copeland needed to open his eyes before it was too late. He got in his grill and physically shook him to make his point. The backstage segment was actually the best part of this entire deal. It was ironic, though, because Sting might get turned on soon, and Edge was known his entire career, the vast majority of his career, as the ultimate opportunist in WWE. So it's not like he's a goody two-shoes babyface who hasn't turned his back on people, blindsided them. Why would he not want to fight Christian? It doesn't really make a lot of sense whatsoever. But really, the main thing to talk about here is Flair, because the match is going to be a throwaway. Khan has been trying to get Flair in AEW for years. He was going to come in initially and manage Andrade Alitalo after they got released by WWE. That fell apart because of the sexual harassment and assault controversy, and then the Andrade stuff. So now Khan finally gets another WCW and WWE toy, and he's going to let Flair just limp around for the next five months? Like, look, Ric Flair is wrestling. Wrestling is Ric Flair. I get it. An appearance here or there, special and unique to some degree. Seeing him at the WWE Hall of Fame ceremony, that was interesting because it put him in the right platform. But on AEW TV regularly to do nothing, to maybe turn on Sting and be in the corner of his final opponent, I just do not understand it. Why would you have another legend who has nothing to do with AEW bump into Sting's retirement when Sting has been the legend for AEW across all of these years? I don't understand why you would take 10% of the shine away from Sting, let alone whatever percent Ric Flair is going to command. And what's even crazier than this is I've already seen the about face from AEW fans on social media thrilled that he's there after not that long ago saying he should be nowhere near wrestling anymore. I had zero expectations for the special gift. So this neither exceeded nor fell below them. It was mostly nothing, but let's not forget, please, that Tony Khan used Vince McMahon's rape allegations as a joke on Twitter like two weeks ago. And now he has no problem bringing in a guy with sexual assault allegations against him and also has no problem paying guys like Dennis Rodman and Mike Tyson who either have sexual assault or rape allegations or convictions against them. Yet no one is supposed to bat an eye about that and call him out as a hypocrite. It's truly ridiculous. So there's your mini rant on the situation. I gotta tell you, man, for all the things they could have done for Sting, Ric Flair, I, I don't get it. And by the way, why did this have to be Tony Khan's gift to Sting? Why couldn't this have been Darby's gift to Sting? Why did Tony inject himself into this and then not even show up on the show to give him the gift? Is the gift that he's paying this old man so that he'll show up on TV and stand next to him? Like, just the circumstances of the entire thing were really, really strange. On Collision, Brian Danielson fought Andrade El Idolo. Now, this was booked for no reason whatsoever by Tony, who promoted it as a dream match, which straight up, it's just a complete overuse and exaggeration of such a term. Not only have they fought before, 
No one was pining away for this matchup, even though obviously they're two great wrestlers and them in the ring together would be awesome. It's not a dream match. And again, you have Andrade returning after being out of action for three weeks with no storyline coming into this. So Andrade hit the double stomp in the Tree of Woe, plus a double jump moonsault. He countered LaBelle Lock into a figure four with Brian reaching the ropes before four could become eight. Then they countered a bunch of pinning combinations with Danielson trapping Andrade's arms for the win in 19 minutes. I went 3.75 stars B+. The lights went out after the bell with Malachi Black suddenly appearing in the middle of the ring and then black massing Danielson's head clean off his body. BCC ran down with the lights awkwardly going out as Black was leaving the ring. He was gone, obviously, when they went back on. It was an extremely hot moment with Black, who was still wearing the contact, but no longer had any of the dark makeup around his eyes or on his face. My thought here was that Danielson Black would be a great feud with a banger match, but I'm curious about the motivation. Why is he going after him? Initially, when this happened, I saw Black and I was like, oh, they're going to continue the Andrade feud, but they're not. So Andrade came in, had a match. Now, something else did happen with him. We'll talk about it a little bit later. But again, it's just like he has like a like a two-week storyline, does something, and then leaves. It's, it's weird. We'll get to what's happening with Andrade in a little bit. On Collision, FTR fought people named Bad Thad Brown and Darian Bengston to no contest in one minute because the lights went out. Black appeared. They went out again. Brody King and Buddy Matthews were there. They got beat down three on two. King was wearing a cast for his broken wrist that had death written on it. So obviously House of Black is going after the baby faces. That's what I thought. Then we had a tag team championship match on collision. Ricky Starks and Big Bill against Claudio Castagnoli and Wheeler Yuta. The BCC guys squashed Brian Keith in something called Exodus Prime on Rampage and another like legitimacy builder. Um, told you guys that this is what they keep doing when it comes to putting people in title matches. BCC did the 15 rotation swing dropkick combo on Starks. House of Black interfered as they were about to hit fastball special. So Starks speared Yuta and hit Rochambeau for the title retention in another really long collision main event. The champions then stood in the corner as House of Black entered and attacked Yuta. Danielson ran down. All five of the heels ganged up on the three faces in the ring. FTR then ran down. They got their asses kicked. Then John Moxley made the save but he entered through the crowd and somehow the faces all recovered and stood tall, clearing the ring. For some reason, Starks through all of the heels decided, hey, you know what? I'm gonna get into the ring. It looked like they were all gonna go in, but rather than check around him, he just slid into the ring himself. And he ate two finishers while everyone else, including Big Bill, stayed outside. I don't know that Ricky Starks was the best person to go in there and take finishers. It doesn't really seem appropriate when you're just trying to be building him as a, a big time talent. There's also a fun swing that they did with Cash Wheeler using Ricky's body as a jump rope. It just kind of felt like a house show finish, which made it even odder. So you have BCC and FTR together, and then you have a random five-man heel alliance. It's intriguing in terms of what they're doing, but in the moment, it was rather confusing because it didn't make much sense in terms of storyline. Blood and Guts went down in July, so there's no need for a five-on-five crazy match like that unless there's a new match type being introduced, or they're going to do like anarchy in the arena or something at full gear, which I guess might be what they're planning. BCC versus House of Black makes total sense as a top tier trios feud, but neither has the titles and the house attacking FTR doesn't really fit into that. Again, there's no reason for why they did that. So if they provide the reason next week, then maybe it'll all come together, make sense, and we won't have any criticisms. But for now, you had FTR wanting to start at the bottom to regain the titles, 
yet they didn't even get a chance to have one match to do that. So it's just immensely tough to evaluate this until we know more. So we'll save our evaluation until next week. Battle of the Belts International Championship was on the line. Orange Cassidy against John Silver. Silver won a number one contendership match on Rampage that involved Kip Sabian and Isaiah Cassidy. Interesting that they did like a minimal effort build for this, yet weekly give people title matches without them earning it whatsoever. Orange hit Stun Dog Millionaire in Beach Break. Alex Reynolds distracted and laid in a belt shot for a false finish. Cassidy came back with Orange Punch and retained the title. That went as expected. Backstage after this match, Orange said, something happened before the match. BCC got in his face. And if they wanted to start a fight, they could fight on Dynamite when he teams with Kazuchika Okada. I was like, what? So they booked Okada for a TV match, not only without any truly legitimate storyline build, but going so far as to mention a backstage interaction that we don't actually get to see. And I don't think they posted it on social media either. All the build up a match between four baby faces. Please tell me if I'm getting this wrong because either I'm missing something or this is the laziest pure matchmaking booking that I can remember. So we move to Dynamite, Brian and Claudio against Cassidy and Okada. Nothing really happened here until Danielson and Okada both tagged in late. They had a tremendous sequence as one would expect. Orange did a really cool counter of the swing trying a DDT. So Claudio countered back into a vertical suplex only for Orange to counter that mid-air into Stun Dog Millionaire. Then Claudio countered an orange punch attempt into the swing, which he slowed down and accelerated. This was tremendous. It was actually better than the Danielson Okada sequence. There was a hysterical moment. Okada did his thing where he spreads his arms wide and the camera zooms out in New Japan. But Orange knows that as the best friends hug cue. So when Okada did that, Orange went in and hugged him. And then the, the camera zoomed out again a second time. Legitimately, a perfect piece of creative even without the seriousness. You guys know I usually don't like comedy injected into a serious match. This was 10 out of 10, perfect. Okada held Brian as Cassidy hit orange punch. Then he took out Danielson with Rainmaker. Claudio nailed Okada with a driving uh, European uppercut off the ropes and then caught orange with the same thing for the win. After the bell, Danielson uh, sold what I would describe as like a broken orbital bone. Okada kind of loomed over him and taunted a little bit. All of BCC and the extended Best Friends crew came out and kind of just stood around. Then Orange Claudio for the international title was announced, which was appropriate given the champion, you know, just got pinned. To beat the champion, to be able to beat the champion, that doesn't make any sense. It made sense here. I just wanted to play the sound drop. Uh, top to bottom, this was the best overall segment on AEW television this week because every part of this was fun. Everything made sense. And the post-match felt like reality instead of kayfabe. And I say all of that despite, don't forget, coming into the match, me saying there was no build for this. They just did it to put Okada in a match in the main event and whatever. And that still remains true. Getting to this point was ridiculous. But in terms of entertainment value, what we got in the segment was fantastic. Now, I did get messages on Twitter about whether I felt the ending of Dynamite was lifeless because it kind of just petered out with the injury concern. I thought that was done on purpose because they wanted it to feel real. And therefore, I thought it was extremely well done. It probably leads to Brian Okada too at an upcoming pay-per-view or maybe Forbidden Door next year. It also plays into the kick from Malachi, which would have hit him in the same part of the face, I believe. But then you have Danielson possibly selling a broken orbital bone while he might do a five-on-five -five feud match that could be anarchy in the arena 
or might just be a trios match with House of Black. So either they're going to get him checked out and he's going to be fine, or they're going to get him checked out and he wears a mask, like a kayfabe Rip Hamilton mask, or he's injured and he's out of action for a period of time and he comes back and fights Okada. So it's just going to be really interesting to see the way they book this. I'm definitely curious, but there's a lot going on here and it's not that clear. On Dynamite, Hook and Rob Van Dam fought Dark Order. Uh, a heel distraction late allowed Rob Van Dam to avoid a chair shot from Evil Uno and knock him out of the ring. Then he hit the five-star frog splash on Alex Reynolds, dodged a kick from John Silver, and Hook locked in Red Rum for the win. I remain impressed with how much RVD can go at 52. I've said for a while that he should have been making frequent surprise appearances in WWE, such as just at the Royal Rumble. So it's immensely frustrating for me that they never took advantage of him in this way, the last few years, I'm glad AEW is using him. On Dynamite, there was an ROH Trios title match, Hung Bucks against the Hardys and Isaiah Cassidy. This was the answer for an open challenge that was set on Rampage. Cassidy hit Silly String, Matt Hardy hit Twist of Fate on Matt Jackson, with Jeff adding a Swanton Bomb for a broken fall. Hangman Page caught Cassidy with Buckshot Lariat coming out of a missed springboard, and the Young Bucks added BTE Trigger for the title retention. Way better match than I expected, but not really much else to talk about. After it ended, Prince Nana and Swerve Strickland broke into Hangman's home, so he ran out of the ring as if it would get him home fast enough to catch them. I always think that type of babyface reaction is hysterical when these segments happen in wrestling. I would stay in the ring and see what the hell they were doing so I knew what was going down, or I would like grab Justin Roberts' phone and try to call my house. Like There's a million things I would do, but I would not just run out of the ring and not see what was happening. I always just think that's weird. Um... So Swerve then set up a camera above Hangman's baby's crib. He chose not to do anything because, you know, he'd go to jail for many years if he did. Instead, he left his shirt behind as a reminder saying, Swerve's house. This was great as usual with Swerve. Actually a bit surprised that this whole feud extended past Russell Dream, but it's staying hot and that's a huge positive. We do have to ask though, why was Paige's baby home alone? Like where was Mrs. Hangman? Do they not have a security system? Is she that deep of a sleeper? These questions need to be answered. On Dynamite, Chris Jericho was interviewed by Renee Paquette. He put over the effects of Powerhouse Hobbs' beatdown. Jericho reflected on whether he has what it takes to beat someone like Hobbs, take a step back, or maybe he needs to get stronger and get revenge. Jericho said Don Callis' family has a lot of people, and he has a lot of friends too, including some that are even bigger than Hobbs that he might call. My immediate thought was Paul White because of their old tag team, Jericho. It makes so much sense. Other than him, I really don't know. Like, maybe Goldberg? I just can't think of anyone else who would fit that bill of being bigger than Powerhouse Hobbs. And seeing Jericho with White against younger talent like this, it's not necessarily the most exciting booking, unless I guess White takes the fall and sells his ass off for Powerhouse Hobbs. On Rampage, Sky Blue fought Ruby Soho. Soraya was ringside. Soho hit no future in a false finish. Blue then countered two finishers only for Ruby to counter Skyfall into the ropes. Blue took two shots of the spray can, not the paint itself, the can, uh, before Soho won with a roll-up. This was a terrible match. The heels attacked after the bell because that's what always happens. Chris Statlander made the save because that's what always happens. Sky, who had uh, darker eye makeup, again, because, you know, she's turning dark or House of Blackish or whatever. Uh, she also had new multicolored gear, which didn't really fit the aesthetic of her getting darker. But regardless, uh, she wouldn't let Stat help her up. So clearly they're doing something with her gimmick or the babyface heel alignment, something like that. On Collision, Sky fought Hollywood Haley. 
Sky had the same gear here, but the makeup was more black instead of navy blue. Haley is from OVW. She was featured in the Netflix series Wrestlers, which I'm still two episodes away from completing because I lost Netflix access. Uh, basically, they won't let me go into my friend's account anymore. So I haven't seen the last two episodes. I want to watch them in like 4K. So I'm trying to log back into Netflix rather than just like download them or something like that. Uh, so, but that's where she's from. Haley uh, apparently had a WWE tryout canceled because of medical reasons. Clearly not a problem for AEW. Truthfully, I don't understand why either company has any real level of interest in her. Like she's good in the small pond that is OVW, but she just does not hold the candle to the talent in either major company. Sky was more demonstrative in her motions during this match. She won in two minutes with a running powerbomb off the ropes and a code blue. Cameras zoomed in on the eyes this time, and she just kept winking. Like, she would, not, not blinking, like winking. She'd wink an eye, and then like look back and wink again, and she just kept doing it. It was very odd, and the crowd response was not great. On Battle of the Belts, Stat fought Willow Nightingale for the TBS title. Willow had an earlier stage of the eye stuff going on, Stat pulled her off the ropes for a powerbomb and hit 450 for the one, two, three to retain the title in 10 minutes. One of the better matches on the weekend shows for uh, 3.25 stars and a B. Willow started shaking Stat's hand even when she didn't let Sky do the same last week, which was inconsistent. And then Sky ran in and knocked it away. Willow stood up and shook it anyway. Sky looked far more disturbed than even one hour prior on collision. She also had some really smart jeans that were half black and half blue to kind of play into her gimmick. I'm intrigued to see what they're doing with Sky to some degree. To another degree, I don't know that I care that much. On Dynamite, the women's championship was on the line. Hikaru Shida defending against Ruby Soho. So get this, okay? Ruby got a title match because she beat Sky. This despite the fact that everyone beats Sky. Ruby lost a number one contendership clean to Shida one month ago. And then she lost a TBS title match to Stat three weeks before that. So what the fuck sense did this booking make that she got a title match? Anyway, Ruby tried to use the actual title belt late only for Sheeta to avoid the shot and spray Ruby with the green hairspray spray paint, except Ruby used the title as like a shield. So it ended up getting sprayed on the title. Then Soho tore off her wrist tape and choked Sheeta with it while hitting Destination Unknown for a false finish. The referee was unfazed seeing this happen. Soho then hit No Future with Sheeta no-selling it and immediately hitting a katana. Sheeta followed with a falcon arrow. Ruby literally ran herself into an exposed turnbuckle and then Sheeta hit a second katana to retain the title. It was all just kind of a mess, but obviously Soho wasn't about to win this. Tony Storm came out immediately after the bell doing her entire entrance with Luther apparently now involved, uh, Excalibur announced that Storm would challenge for the title, but wondered who she would fight. Uh, she would fight Sheeta, who is the champion, right? Like, what What am I missing here? Also, Tony Storm just lost a title match five weeks ago. And since then, all she's done is beat Sky Blue and Kiara Hogan. So how exactly does she deserve another title match? I get it. Tony wants to ride the hot hand, and she is the hot hand. But how about you let this character spread its wings and grow and breathe a bit before shoving it right back into another title match? And why is the question whether Sheeta will be champion? The question should be whether Storm can become number one contender to justify this. Very odd. On Battle of the Belts, the Acclaimed fought the JAS Remainder. That's what I'm calling them now. On Rampage, Daniel Garcia 
and Daddy Magic bickered and then shook hands, squashing their beef, even though Magic still hated to dance. Acclaimed got a backstage promo on Collision with more comedic stuff. JAS was interviewed again on Collision with Anna Jade declaring they're on the same page. There was kind of a fun interaction with Angelo Parker and Ruby Soho. We'll see if that leads to anything. Garcia danced twice late in the match. That gave Max Caster an opening to take him out. Billy Gunn then hit Famouser with Acclaimed adding their new really awful tag team finisher that takes way too long to set up, but they won and retained the titles. The dancing effectively cost the heels the match, though it's not really like Acclaimed was ever in danger. On Collision, Miro fought Action Andretti. Hot and flexible, watched from ringside. That's what I'm going to call CJ Perry, as long as they use that on her big screen video. Andretti hit a 450 for a one count. Miro then hit his thrust kick and game over for the win in nine minutes. He looked at hot and flexible after the bell, got her applause. Despite some critiques last week, what excited me was Miro killing these people. Instead, it was a full two-segment match with Andretti getting a lot of offense. That did nothing for me. On Battle of the Belts, Hot and Flexible tried to recruit Andrade, saying he could become the best and even most handsome wrestler under her arm. Andrade needed the interviewer to explain the offer. So this is what I was talking about earlier with Andrade. So now we're going to get Miro Andrade. And to continue the storyline, Andrade just loses to Miro? I guess we'll find out. On Rampage, Mystico fought Rocky Romero in a best two of three falls match. So this was the big match with the former Sin Cara, Mystico. It did play a role in moving extra tickets for the show, no doubt about it, but certainly didn't do anything from a rating standpoint. Rampage, again, did under 400,000 viewers on Friday. In terms of the stipulation, I didn't even realize it was a best two or three falls match until the bell rang. This opened the show. Mystico won the first fall with a really cool arm and leg submission. Romero took the second fall after hitting sliced bread. Then he hit avalanche sliced bread off the top of the post but somehow didn't get the fall even with a more impactful version of the move. Mystico came back with a top rope Spanish fly, Canadian destroyer, helicopter hurricanrana, and then a wrenching armbar, and he got the win. This was hyped up significantly. I found it to be extremely solid. 3.5 stars, B. It's what I would expect from these two. Nothing more, nothing less. The bigger deal is that it happened at all, pretty much because CMLL has really strange footing in the professional wrestling world. So Romero deserves a lot of credit for making that happen. But again, it's another match on AEW featuring unsigned wrestlers that had nothing to do with any storylines or anything else that was going on. In totality, four of the 11 wrestlers on Rampage this week were not signed by AEW. And there were more additionally on obviously Collision as well. On Rampage, Stokely Hathaway moderated a confrontation between Eddie Kingston and Jay Lethal. Basically, Lethal said, He doesn't need to prove anything else to get a title match. He also insulted Kingston, saying he only cares about the ROH title because it was once held by Homicide, and he can't hold a candle to him. Eddie didn't even get a chance to respond. Stoke basically made Kingston versus Jeff Jarrett with a lethal title shot on the line. If Jarrett was to win that match, shouldn't he get the title shot? To beat the champion. To be able to beat the champion. That doesn't make any sense. So by far the best part of this was Kingston getting in Jarrett's face, calling him a hillbilly bitch. More Eddie, less shitty unnamed faction. So we had Kingston against Jarrett on collision. This was a non-title Memphis street fight. I missed that it was a street fight initially, I guess. Um, So it seemed ridiculous to kind of jump and do this stipulation when it's a faction of five against one guy. There was a whole table of food and trash cans. Jarrett got sprayed with ketchup and mustard. Kingston ate a cutter off the ramp through a table. I think it was by lethal. Karen got involved. Eddie hit a spinning back fist to avoid a guitar shot. Then he countered lethal injection with a half and half suplex and broke a guitar over Satnam Singh's head. 
only to eat the stroke for a false finish. Singh then came in and choke slammed him. They hit the stroke and lethal injection. And Jarrett got the win in 14 minutes. This was awful. All right. Not worst match of the year awful, but it was awful. Because I don't watch Ring of Honor, I have no idea if Stoke is supposed to be like a total heel authority figure or if he has a gripe with Eddie. I know they talk shit on Twitter, but I figured that was just like Stoke being Stoke. If that's the case, the booking makes sense. If it's not, then it's even more ridiculous that this was the booking. Hearing commentary try to sell this as some great piece of business was majorly eye-rolling. Later backstage, Kingston said he made Lethal earn his shot because he's fallen out of love with pro wrestling, getting in the group that he's in, and he's lost Eddie's respect. He questioned Lethal's manhood if he brings the entire crew to the fight. Then Kingston said it would hurt him to beat Lethal down in front of his mother because she knows that uh, Jay deserves it. Promo of the week in AEW by a mile. It almost made all of the shit we just talked about worthwhile. That's how good Eddie was on the mic. On Collision, LFI got a vignette of a board meeting with Roosh laying down the law saying he won't be told that he's too dangerous and he didn't learn English and adapt to the American style to see others get what he deserves. Not bad. Still want to see where it's going. And then on Rampage, Santana and Ortiz did the really dumb dual taped promo thing where they somehow knew what the other was saying. It was agreed that they would settle their beef in Philadelphia, which means we'll see that match next Friday on Collision. I presume it was taped on Wednesday night. Look, I just don't care about it. I'm sorry. It's almost over. Hopefully there's nothing more after this. I'm ready for it to be done. Now, I missed this announcement apparently during Dynamite. I don't know when it happened. Maybe I was fast forwarding through commercials and it came after that. I don't know. But apparently they announced that AEW World's End, the final pay-per-view of the year, will be held on Saturday, December 30th in Long Island, New York. So obviously an MJF main evented show, whether he defends the title or maybe gets a rematch for the title there. You have to imagine they're going to play into the uh, bidding war of 2024 angle given his contract is supposed to expire two days later on January 1st. But I'm of the belief that he re-signed with AEW long ago for major money. So they're probably going to use it in storyline. Maybe he even loses and goes on a vacation afterward, but it won't be reality. There is no way that AEW is going this hard with MJF, turning him babyface, giving him all these challengers, just for him to leave the company at the absolute top of his game. But more to the point, in a 125-day span, AEW will be holding five pay-per-views, one every 25 days at a total cost of $250 for fans over this four-month period of time. That's the equivalent, obviously, of eight in one year, and it would be eight in the year of 2023, which is actually not bad, and it's way better than doing 12, but it is double the original four. If you had eight and you spaced it out better over a full calendar year, that could work. But four over 125 days is just absolute insanity. And lastly, before we get out of here, uh, usually I take the show earlier. Also, usually we don't talk about ratings on this podcast that much. But when something notable happens, I'm gonna bring it up. And notably, AEW Dynamite on Wednesday did 774,000 and a 0.24 demo. And as we have said since the start of AEW's existence, when Shows are not on the same night and they're not going head to head with one another. There is no such thing as a win or a loss. However, it is interesting to note that NXT on Tuesday did 787,000 and a 0.21 demo. So they didn't have a higher demo than AEW, but they did have more viewership than the signature Dynamite promo, I believe for the third time in the last four weeks. That is immensely 
notable. More than saying anything about AEW, it's actually positive for NXT. But what's really crazy when you compare these ratings is NXT was not only against the opening night of the NBA, it was also against Game 7 of the NLCS. Dynamite had what you would call maybe the second night or second opening night of the NBA. A lot of teams still playing their first games. I'm a Knicks fan. They had their first game head-to-head. I watched both simultaneously. Um, But they didn't have any baseball competition, and they didn't have better television competition than NXT did. So really interesting from a ratings perspective. I believe it was down approximately 220,000 viewers year over year for Dynamite. Last year, they basically did a million and a 3-2 demo. This was a 2-4. Those are significant declines, even with fewer homes having cables. So just really interesting from a ratings perspective. We're not here to praise or criticize one or the other, but on the way out of the show, the numbers came in as we were finishing taping. I felt it was worth mentioning. That, folks, wraps it up for this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back on Tuesday with our next WWE episode. That will be 2023 WWE Crown Jewel Ultimate Preview. And then one week from now, same bat time, same bat channel, we will have your next NXT and AEW episode. On the way out, let me hit you with those reminders. First, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, leave a five-star rating on Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Not only that, you can DM and tweet us questions and comments that we will read on the show. And I need you to support us, not just follow us, but retweet, like, you know, respond to the things that we say. That is how we can continue growing our audience. Also, please remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over sign up. You will get bonus audio, instant reaction episodes to the major shows, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling. I love doing it. I hear that many of you love listening to them. So again, sign up for those. You also get exclusive news posts every single week and your financial contributions directly support the continuation of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Thank you all for listening to this edition of Getting Over. As mentioned, we will be back on Tuesday, but at this point, it is time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with three final words. Bye for now.